0: You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this episode of ASPE's special podcast series, the Sydney Dialogue Summit Sessions, ASPE's Beck Shrimpton speaks to Misha Zelinsky, Fulbright Scholar and National Security Expert. They discuss Misha's passion for national security, including his recent experiences reporting from Ukraine on Russia's war, his views on Russia's strategy, and what's at stake for democracy in the conflict.
1: My name is Beck Shrupt and I'm director of the Sydney Dialogue, a major summit hosted by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. It's focused on critical emerging cyber and space technologies. But today I'm delighted to be joined uh, along the sidelines of this summit by Misha Zelensky, a national security commentator who has reported extensively from Ukraine. We have a great session today on Ukraine, which will be fascinating. But but Misha, first, let's just uh, let's talk a little bit about you. You've quickly made a name. <laughs> My
0: favourite topic.
1: right? <laughs> good, good. <laughs> um, you've, uh, you've, you've made a name for yourself in the national security space. Um, but this is after you uh, initially established yourself as a key figure in the labour movement. Tell us about your interest in national security and how has your previous work led you to into this sector?
0: Well, it's very flattering of you to say that I've made a name for myself. I'm not sure that's right, but uh, people probably see you hearing from me, at least my friends are, uh, in this in these topics. But look, my career in the labour movement, uh, was obviously at the Australian Workers' Union for over a decade, the things that we argued for at the union have kind of become arguably the policy uh, choices you know, of mainstream now, right? So when we were saying things like, well, we need to have energy security, this has become enormously relevant now with what we've seen uh, with Putin's war in Ukraine, uh, sovereign supply chains, making sure that we've got uh, the things we need when we need them. Now, before COVID-19 hit, who would have thought that face masks and hand sanitizer would have been the coin of the realm, right? And so the ability to produce the things when you need them is what sovereignty is. It's not about Uh, well, what best price can I get them when things are good? It's when you can't get them uh, that the true price of a good is established. So things like that. So making sure that we've got good supply chains, that we've got uh, the industries that we need in Australia, that we've got defence industries. And we've argued for that for a long time, making sure that we've got the capacity to build the things we need here as well. Utterly consistent. And so I know a lot of people look at national security and say, well, is this a right-wing value? Well, I, I, I... fundamentally disagree with that. I think the defence of the country is critical to everyone. Uh, Labor's got a proud history of that. You look at John Curtin, who led uh, the Labor government in Australia War Cabinet through World War II and and right through that Labor's always had a very strong streak uh, making sure that Australia is a vibrant democracy, able to defend itself. And so, you know, one of my heroes, George Orwell, known for opposing totalitarianism around the world, but is a passionate social democrat as well. And he knew that for democracy to thrive around the world, it needs to be a good uh, example, right? You can't just argue the case, it needs to be lived and you need to be making sure that you're living your values. We won the Cold War, not because people read Karl Marx and then read Jonathan Locke and thought, you know, Locke's got the better argument. They they looked at East Berlin and West Berlin, and West Berlin was just a better place to live. And so we've got to make sure that we're living those values. And that's sort of what all argued. You know, I agree with that. I, I oppose totalitarianism, but I want to make sure that our societies are just and equal. So I, I don't see them as apart. I think they're kind of streamed together very nicely.
1: You make a, a really excellent point, and I, and I think it's really fascinating that um, you know we're talking here at the Sydney Dialogue about things like economic warfare, industrial warfare, academic warfare. And and this does come back to ideas and values and conditions, right? You know, right. You've got to set the the conditions, enable that within our own countries to, totally. to give us that kind of sovereignty. So uh, I see I see exactly what you're saying, and I and I can see how you can how you how you've brought this together personally and professionally.
0: Well, geopolitics is a results driven business, right? If you can't win the argument at home, you're not going to win it abroad. And so uh, it's in our interest to make sure that we have the best societies, because then they speak for themselves.
1: Yeah. And cheapness does not automatically, you know, for for a while there, I think we were we were valuing, mm. uh, you know, cheapness and efficiency over over many of these things that we're now starting to realise are are true values, but they're also their national security right. issues.
0: Yeah, look, I think we're living in a little bit of fool's paradise. And it was a nice one. You know, things were cheap, manufactured goods. We basically said China can be the world's manufacturing centre. And that was fine on the basis that China becomes if not democratic, at least benign. Uh, But what you've got now is an outward reaching authoritarianism and we need to be concerned about that. And then when that outwardly reaching authoritarian regime controls the supply of critical items, uh, we should be concerned about that. And uh, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has made it clear that when we do things in our sovereignty, we exercise our sovereign rights, that they are prepared to punish us for that. You look at the trade sanctions that were imposed well, who's to say that uh, in the event of shortages of critical things or we get into some other element of foreign policy that they dislike that we are articulating that they won't punish us further and so look we can't have autarky we're, that'd be silly but the idea that you have all your eggs in one manufacturing basket in one nation is silly and every other uh, country around the world is making similar judgments now we don't have to make everything in australia but friendshoring Uh, reshoring, some balance in between of stockpiling, got to get that right. And a just-in-time supply chain that is based in a potentially hostile or at least antagonistic uh, authoritarian regime is bad risk management.
1: Yep, I agree. You've talked about uh, a willingness of autocratic nations to use coercion uh and nowhere have we seen this more uh starkly than we have in Ukraine and right. and this you know the Russia's use of its uh, its its gas and its its energy supply um really put a sharp focus on this now you've been reporting a lot from Ukraine uh for those of us who haven't been on the ground and we don't have that first hand experience can you just talk a little bit about about what you've seen what's what's changed in Ukraine through the conflict and to bring it back to Sydney dialogue uh, for me, can we talk a little bit about technology and and industry? Look, I
0: mean, I think lots of people have followed the war very closely and the images are very powerful. Uh, But when you see uh, European cities, cities that feel not dissimilar to Sydney, being bombarded and destroyed and you're walking around and you can feel the glass crunching under your feet, now the cameras go away afterwards. They get the footage of the destroyed buildings and it's awful and uh you know people that have lost their lives or have been injured and the horrific images. But then what it tends to miss is the cleanup and that the kind of people getting their lives back together in some way. And so watching people sweeping glass up and uh having to put cardboard up over windows because glass is not available and having to try to live their lives in these types of circumstances, it's really heart-wrenching, it's awful. Similarly, those who have fled outside of Ukraine, uh, my family is Russian-Ukrainian, I rode a bus out with a number of refugees that were leaving at the beginning of the war, and uh, I think the first two weeks, and I was watching, I think uh, she was about 85, so a woman of my grandmother's vintage, carrying her, as she described it, my entire life in one bag, and she'd spent 18 hours on a train, laying down because they had to stop the trains at times because of the bombardments and making sure that they weren't getting hit. And laying down at 85 on a train, right? And that she was lucky to get out, others didn't. Then several more hours on a the bus, then another 18 hours on a bus to Belgium with no family in Belgium waiting for her. And I th- watched her crossing the the, uh, the border into Poland. I thought, you know, my family, my grandmother did this as a very young woman, you know, 75 years ago. And I thought, we sort of got nowhere it feels. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they're the things that you, that stay with you. And they're the things you perhaps don't necessarily see as that human cost. Um, now, in terms of technology, well, technology has been central to this, right? I think everyone has been surprised, or perhaps were at least surprised at the beginning about Ukrainian resilience militarily. Uh, the society is extraordinarily resilient. We talk about their morale, etc., but their ability to withstand the if not the first, but at least the second most powerful military in the world, no one gave them a chance, right? 24 hours, 72 hours maybe, right? Those were most of the assessments. And so technology has been critical to this. Now, it's the world's first smartphone war in many ways. The Ukrainians' ability to dominate the information space has been extraordinary and so much focus on Zelensky, rightly, because as a former entertainer, he's got an incredible capacity to communicate, right? Not just as speeches, but... All the way through the, the style of communication, the way that they're able to generate interest and continue to keep putting the challenge of Ukraine is you know, in a busy world. We've got Donald Trump just been indicted. You've got to keep putting it back at the top of the intrate. And, and that is hard, right? There's a lot of things happening. And so that's the task of the president. And he's been very successful with that but you go all the way through all 45 million, roughly Ukrainians have used their phones to dominate this information space. And it's quite interesting because, The Russians are the masters of misinformation. They're very good at controlling the public discourse, but they've been smashed, really, by the Ukrainians, and it's been a top-to-bottom effort, and that dispersed nature of information uh, generation has really precluded the Russians from running this misinformation. I always joke that in some ways war, facts have made a comeback because you either... uh, your troops are either in Kyiv or they're not. Your tanks are being destroyed or they're not. You're either advancing or you're not. And so the ability for the Ukrainians to push out their message has been quite extraordinary. In terms of tech generally, well, the way the Russians have fought this war has been very 1980s. So Putin loves the Soviet Union. Well, he's fought a Soviet-style war. Tanks, now I'll sit in Kyiv when this 60-kilometre-long uh, column yeah. of tanks was rolling its way down to Kiev, And I thought to myself, bloody hell, right? I mean, that's not a great thing to hear that it's snaking no. its way down. But of course, it was a sitting target yeah. for modern style of fighting. So they got the, the Ukrainians looked at it and said, beautiful. And they just smashed it up with drones, smashed it up with uh, handheld missiles, anti-tank missiles. And so the ability for them to fight with modern uh, weaponry, cheaper weaponry, uh, more automated weaponry in some instances, more high tech, I think has crushed the russian approach of you know strength in numbers and this old kit approach but the other thing i'd say and it's this goes more to strategy and tactics is that what's been on display and it's it's central to the use of technology but it's an innovation question
1: Mm.
0: and the top-down approach of the russians has just shown itself to be very poor and that's central to autocratic regimes no one wants to make a mistake so what does putin reckon and so they're asking putin what they should be making tactical decisions on the battlefield These decisions are running all the way back up and all the way back down. And so they're very poorly led. And that centralized control element has slowed down or made them make bad tactical decisions. At the same time, Ukraine is using these new weapons, using power to the edge in terms of the enabling of their leadership on the ground. They're very well trained, obviously, as well, has enabled them to outthink the Russians. And by outthinking them and using these tech... Uh, innovative tools I think has been kind of critical and not as well discussed but I think central to them being a democracy is that they've been able to think and innovate and those things are inherent to our societies and not inherent to autocracies and that's been on display here as much as anything else.
1: I really love that you've brought that up because I think we sometimes forget about these inherent advantages of our system, and so we don't leverage them, we don't talk about them, right. um, and we don't value them. And that's um, you know that that to me is us sort of it's an own goal, right? Right. So uh, I, I like that you've mentioned. Yeah, that we great. can have some confidence in our strengths. Absolutely, we ought to. We ought yeah. to have a lot more confidence in our strengths. Now you talked about how the Ukrainian president and the civilians of Ukraine have used some pretty um, ubiquitous technology to to keep and to well to get and to keep. The, the focus on the war and what's happening and and to enable truth mm. to get out there I, I agree with you I think it's really important I think we need to keep using technology for that because um, there is a you know there's a risk uh, which the Ukrainians talk about all the time of this weariness of, totally. of yeah of, of people losing focus and and like you said the cameras disappear they get their footage uh, and, and they go and we see it on a six-minute grab or a three-minute grab on yeah. the news and, you know, our hearts bleed and, we'll, and then we get on and make our dinner and, and off we right. go and, you know, sorry. Please, no, 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 please. you're
0: right. I mean, unfortunately, news values don't necessarily align with uh, the realities of war. And so people in journalism or in news will say, well, what's new about this? Well, nothing. Well, then it's not really news. Unfortunately, the war is just as horrific as it was on day one as it is now on day 400, whatever. That is the challenge. And I think thus far Ukraine has been very good at that, but you're right. I mean, it's competing with a lot of pressing things that are happening around the world.
1: Yep. Something else that you've talked about a, a lot is uh, is both, is you know, the risks of technology and mm-hmm. how an actor like Putin has used it and, and, and the dangers of it, but you've, you've also balanced that very nicely, I think. And again, I, I, we need to spend more time talking about how Ukraine has achieved superiority uh, through through some of that technology, but you've linked that very nicely back again to values and the advantages of democracy. Again, as we talk about attention span and technology and, and lessons, tell me from your experience in Ukraine and everything that you've seen, and everything that you're talking about linking it back to to your your commitment to to values and and your very long standing ideas about values and and conditions etc talk to me now about the lessons for the Indo-Pacific and i want i want you to hit on attention span again this this new cycle that we have a flare up of you know we need to be we need to be careful we need to be worried when we look at at, at the way Australian industry and, and Australian companies and uh, Australian citizens have been coerced. You know, that, that hit the news for a little while, but, you know, we kind of moved on. How how do we, how do right. we get the attention? What lessons do we bring? Well, it's hard, those?
0: right? I mean, look, I think, uh, you know, my background is having been following the Chinese Communist Party's outward reaching into Australia's democracy, but also around the region. Look, I think those of us who worry about the global rise of authoritarianism. So what's the link between a war in Eastern Europe and what China's up to around the world in the Indo-Pacific? Well, don't ask me, ask them, right? Before the (laughs) invasion, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin signed this so-called friendship of no limits. So they held hands and said, we're together against Western, if you want to call them Western or democratic liberal ideals or the global rules of the road, or there's all different terms for it, but basically free and open societies, they're against it. So they've linked the two together. And so uh, how do we continue to make the case or keep people's attention on Well, you got to keep finding new examples. Unfortunately, though, there is a, there is an element in Australian society about how can we get back to the way it was. That's right. Yeah. It's never going to go back to the way it was, I'm afraid, as long as Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and the other bad guys in the Dictators Club want to continue to be bad guys. And that doesn't give me any great pleasure. People say, oh, you know, you're you, you're a hawk. Well, I... Look, ignoring these truths doesn't make them any less true. They're uncomfortable, but we've got to talk about them. It wasn't Australia that militarised the South China Sea. It wasn't Australia that sought to open a base in the Solomon Islands. Uh, it's not Australia that's invading Ukraine. Uh, we're not doing any of these things. These are The dictatorships that are doing these things. We're not um, oppressing uh, Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province. Uh, so you've got to look at the realities on the ground and make that assessment. Unfortunately... We can't go back to the way that it was. We've got to be honest about that with people. But at the same time, understand that these things are are all linked. And that's why I say, look, the best thing we can do is, one, listen to what the dictators are telling us. Vladimir Putin said he wanted to invade Ukraine. Oh, this is all posturing. Also understand that, unfortunately, as much as we would love to find a way to accommodate these guys, they're not able to be accommodated. Now, that's not to say that we need to uh, completely get rid of them but we also need to make them understand that their world will not tolerate their bad behavior because unfortunately bad behavior when it goes unchecked leads to worse behavior now putin's the best example of that he annexes crimea in illegally in 2014 starts a war in donbass in 2016 he meddles in the united states election he meddles in brexit so on and so forth and then leads us directly you can draw a straight line from everything he's been doing from since he got into power over 20 years to the invasion xi jinping likewise been pushing out, out. you know, we, we'll build these islands, but we won't militarise them. Well, then they did. We're going to do, we're, we're doing this, but then we're not. And so they've made it clear that they're prepared to uh, unify Taiwan by force, if required. That would be bad for Australia for that to happen, because that's an island democracy of 25 million people. Sounds kind of familiar. Doesn't it? Uh, so, you know, again, I never want to see war. War's horrific. I've, the closer you get to it, the more pointless it is. But... We didn't start a war in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin did. The democracies didn't do that. No one's talking about war in Taiwan except the Chinese. The easiest way for there to be no war in Taiwan is for Xi Jinping to invade Taiwan. No one's looking to change anything other than keeping it as it is. The Taiwanese don't want independence if you talk to them. They say, we just want to be left alone to do what we're doing here and be democratic. But that's why I think we need to be making sure that our foreign policy settings are very clear to the autocrats to say, your bad behaviour has consequences. We're not going to stand for it. And that we take their behaviour at face value and we listen to what they're saying at face value. And I always say, don't listen to me, listen to them. What are they saying? Xi Jinping's talking about long struggle with the West. Vladimir Putin's talking about needing to disrupt and destroy uh, you know, democracies. That That's the reality of the world. We need to accept that and live with it. But when you look at how do you keep people's attention on it, Russia, it's been put that they tend to be like a hurricane. They come in and smash things up. Mm. China operates much Mm. more like climate change, slow, pervasive. and kind of is like it cooks you over time. It makes it harder to resist, uh, but we need to be alive to it. I think fortunately for the political class that the public are ahead of the political class on this. Sometimes there are certain policy measures that you need The politicians to lead on, they can be tough, and people don't really want to do them. You look at the opening up of the economy in the 80s; there was a lot of pain there. The public's been telling the politicians that we're very concerned about the rise of an authoritarian China and the Xi Jinping. And finally, the political class has caught up to that reality. So I think that's a good place, and I think Australians are very alive to it, and I think rightly so. Rightly so.
1: Now, I do think we are out of time. Uh, <laughs> I, I regret that. But all, all that means, uh, Amisha, is that I'm just going to have to get you back in a, in a little while and talk a bit more because you've got a lot more to say about technology. And I'd, I'd really like to draw out some more of your thoughts on on how that's manifesting in our region and how perhaps that's being used mm. uh, in this slow boil way that you've just described uh, in, in our region. So... While regrettably, I, uh, I'm going to have to call it into this conversation.
0: I'd love to. The problem is, I, I can never shut up. So I've got my own <laughs> podcast and there is no limits on the time. So that's why I steal people's time on the hour rather than by the minute. Tension spans being what they are, it's good to keep it short and sweet.
1: Thank you so much for your time. Great pleasure. That's all we have time for today on policy, guns, and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for
0: listening.